Good morning, everyone. Uh, so I just, before I bring up our speaker today, um, a lot of you have not received the message from Phil. So I wanted to give you an update. Uh, the surgery went really well. Phil is at home right now. He came home on Friday. Uh, they are still trying to manage some pain meds for him. So we can just be praying for that and for continued healing. He is going to have some restrictions with driving and lifting. Uh, so as soon as Leona gets a lay of the land and they figure out things, um, I'm sure there's going to be some things we can help with for those of you who have been asking. So we'll just keep you posted on that. Um, but that is it, really. Well, let's just keep praying for Phil and for recovery. And with that, I want to bring up our, our speaker date. We're just really blessed to have someone from Bethel coming, and she's going to be here for a few weeks giving a series for us. So please welcome, give your clarity, welcome to Caitlin. Uh, So uh, my name is Caitlin. I am currently so honored uh, to be one of the campus pastors at Bethel University. So I I see some future royals in the audience, and I'm just really excited for the next few years when you guys definitely decide to go to Bethel. Um, But before I came to Bethel, I was actually interviewing for a job out in Michigan for a teaching pastor job in Grand Rapids, and I was super blessed to have another Minnesotan on the search committee. But what I realized in that conversation is Minnesota is like the gold standard for people who have lived in Minnesota, right? Like Minnesota is the best state. And everything he would tell me about Grand Rapids, he would tell me in light of Minnesota. And so he would be like, you know what? It's just like being in the Twin Cities. It's it's really great here in Grand Rapids. Hey, you know Spy House Coffee? We actually have some really good coffee shops too. It's just like being at home. And you know like the lakes? We have some really great lakes too. So it's just like being in Minnesota. And the winters, they're just like Minnesota, right? Like his whole premise of moving to Grand Rapids was Grand Rapids is great because Grand Rapids is just like Minnesota. And so it made me realize that if you are a Minnesotan, you champion Minnesota to the death, right? Like you are convinced that you live in the absolute best state in the nation, that that we just have such a, a great time, even in the middle of winter, that everything that happens in Minnesota is just so wonderful because Minnesotans love Minnesota. I mean, it's to the point where if I meet somebody who's not from Minnesota and they're like, oh yeah, you know, I, I grew up in New Jersey and I'm like, Your wife is from Minnesota, huh? That's how you ended up back here. She brought you back, right? So my assumption is that anybody who's ever been in Minnesota loves Minnesota. There are some things about being in Minnesota that I think we'll all recognize as really distinctly Minnesotan. Uh, The first one is this, claiming that we have the best anything, right? Like it does not matter what it is, Minnesota does it best. When I was in seminary at Bethel, I had a professor who was from New York, and one day he said to me, he's like, Caitlin, the one thing that I'm really missing here in Minnesota is New York-style pizza. And I was like, we have New York-style pizza. You haven't tried Young Joni's. You haven't been to Mesa. You haven't been to Costco? Like, you're trying to say we don't have New York We have New York pizza in Minnesota. It's just as good as Brooklyn, right? The other thing is eating hot dish. Like, I, I will fight a non-Minnesotan over whether or not their casserole is actually a hot dish. It's a hot dish. So we eat hot dish, uh, and we consider that to be a full meal. You don't need sides when you have hot dish because, you know, you already have the, the green beans in there. You have the cream of mushroom soup. You don't need a side. It's a complete meal. It's totally nutritionally balanced. The other thing is saying thank you to everybody. I mean, when I've gotten tickets in my life in the very few times that I've gotten them back when I was a little bit of a faster driver, uh, I would say thank you to the cop at the end. I'd be like, oh, thank you so much. I, I know you have a really hard job, and, and, and giving me a ticket is not your favorite part of the day, but thank you. It's, it's a good reminder for me to drive slower. I mean, we just say thank you to anybody. You could get the worst news in your life, and you'd be like, thank you so much for telling me. I just really appreciate you in this moment. 
The other thing is we don't take the last of anything, right? Like we will mathematically divide the food as small as humanly possible. You might need a microscope to even see it. And then even then you won't eat it. You're just going to throw it away because you can't take the last of anything. The other thing is we apologize for everything, even if it's not our fault, right? Like, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry uh, that this line is so long. And they're like, ma'am, you don't even work here. You, you can't control the line. We just apologize for everything. And the last thing is we always have this eternal hope that this year is the year that we're going to make it to the Super Bowl or we're going to win the Stanley Cup or we're going to play in the Final Four, whatever it is. We're constantly convinced. I was at Target yesterday, and all of our Vikings gear was 50% off, and I was like, you know what, next year, though. Next year, we're finally going to make it. I mean, there are these things about being a Minnesotan that whether you've lived here your whole life and you've grown up here or you've come here recently, you realize it's just super distinctly Minnesotan. And you can go anywhere else in the world, and I don't think you would experience the same level of calling it a hot dish or apologizing or whatever it might be. You won't experience that anywhere else in the world. There are these things that have just become so culturally Minnesotan. But there is nothing, nothing more Minnesotan than Minnesota nice. I mean, you don't find Minnesota nice anywhere else. We've given ourselves these terms where we're like, we're so Minnesota nice, and it's all about how considerate and friendly and humble we are as a state. But if we're honest, Minnesota nice maybe doesn't extend as far as we tend to think it does. So before 2020 happened and, and all of our flights got grounded and everything like that, I flew out to Sacramento with my home denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church, and, and I had a three-hour layover in Phoenix. And I also, like, something you should know about me is I, is I think there's more time within time than there actually is, right? Like, I just, I never understand time as a concept. So I was like, you know what, I could go climb Camelback Mountain, or I could just go, like, to this airport restaurant and get brunch, and that's probably actually what I should do so I don't miss my flight. So... I had this three-hour layover. I'm like, I'm going to go get breakfast in, in this really delicious, I mean, chef-created airport restaurant. And so I sit down, and they have these tables that are just long, like 12-person on each side seats. I mean, they didn't have, like, small booths. It was like, we're all hanging out here together. We're in the airport. Let's hang out, right? So I sit down, and I'm the only one at a table of 24. And this guy comes in. And the, the host says to the guy, hey, you can pick whatever seat you want to. And so, of course, he picks right across from me. And I'm sitting here, and I'm just trying not to make eye contact the whole time I eat. I'm just like, oh, gosh, like, you could have sat down there. There's another table of 24, but you had to just sit right here. And he wasn't making eye contact, and I was like, you honestly could have picked any other place, right? But then I land in Sacramento and I get in my Uber and the Uber driver and I are talking and we're shooting the breeze. And before I get out, I say, hey, so sorry for talking your ear off. I'm from Minnesota. We're just really nice. We, we like have this whole Minnesota nice thing. And then like every single place I would go to, whether it was a coffee shop or a restaurant or another Uber, I'd be like, oh, I'm so sorry for talking. I'm Minnesota nice. So we just always like to talk and get to know people. And I couldn't help but think back and think about that stark difference between this guy sitting down to me being like, absolutely not. I'm in an airport restaurant, it's not the time to have a conversation, and me for the rest of the trip trying to tell everybody how nice and how friendly Minnesotans are and how we just really want to have a good conversation. Well, it turns out, and how many of you guys are from Minnesota, born and raised? How many of you guys are transplants? So some of you guys know this well. It turns out that we have a disconnect in Minnesota between who we say we are and who we actually are. 
I've had a lot of conversations with Minnesota transplants where I've had to explain that when somebody says that's so interesting, they're not actually that interested. <laughs> or when somebody says, oh, it's good, it might not actually be that good. Or if they say, hey, we should totally hang out sometime, put it on the calendar, what they actually mean is, please don't ever put this on my calendar. I'll see you in six months when we run into each other at Target again. Right? There's these things about who we say we are as Minnesotans that in theory sounds great and in practice isn't us at all. And there's this growing number of people that are beginning to describe Minnesota nice as Minnesota ice. And they say that there's this icy exterior to Minnesotans that's kind of difficult to break through. That Minnesota, for all that we say we are, and, the, and sort of the, the superficial niceness in the target line, it's hard to actually break through and become friends and to find a community where you really feel like you're known and you know them really well. Well, here's some good news. It's actually not entirely our fault, Minnesotans. So as it turns out, uh, there's this article from the Minnesota Public Radio, and, and there's this professor of Scandinavian studies at Gustavus Adolphus, which feels like the premier Scandinavian studies school in Minnesota. Uh, and his name's Roger McKnight, and he wrote in NPR that the origins of Minnesota's icy exterior goes way, 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 way back to the first people who immigrated here from the Scandinavian areas, from Norway, from Sweden. And they had this whole thing in their culture where, where they championed one people, one language, one religion. It was all about do you fit in or do you not fit in to who we are? And he said Swedes' lifelong friends, they were chosen from among people they went to school with and from the people they grew up next door to. An individual made friends slowly, but once they were friends, they were friends for life. It was sort of that friendships where they were friends generationally, right? In other words, there's a pastor, Steve Harris, and he wrote later in an opinion piece on that piece in NPR, and, and he called it a newcomer can find welcome in Minnesota eventually. And he said, Minnesotans are reservedly friendly to newcomers. They won't throw you a party because you've arrived, but they'll drop by a few days or weeks later with a pan of bars. They're a bit stealthy, they're lurking on the edges of deeper friendship until they see if you're going to stick it out, to see what you're made of. And then he said this, which I think is absolutely brilliant. He said, friendships in Minnesota, they are more crockpot than microwave. That it takes a while for us as Minnesotans to really let people simmer into our lives and to create friends and to have communities that know each other really well. Well, over the next few weeks, I want to talk about what it looks like for us to be good neighbors, what it looks like for us to break through this Minnesota ice that I'm sure we're all really familiar with, especially as it gets cold, and for us to actually start to own and be Minnesota nice in the way that the gospel calls us to be, for us to actually be the type of neighbors where when the outside world looks at your church and your church community and, and in your workplace and sees you in your neighborhood, they know that there's a community that loves and cares about them, that's ready for them to break through and actually get to experience life abundant. Your mission slogan for your church is Jesus' is good news for who? Everyone. And I'm convinced that Jesus can't be good news for everyone if the good news of Jesus isn't available to everyone. If people can't see it, how is it good news? If they don't experience it, how is it good news? And so when we talk about this idea that Jesus is good news for everyone, it becomes so important 
that everyone sees and hears and knows the good news of Jesus through you. You see, the truth is, is that the scriptures have a lot to say about the people who surround us. God cares really deeply about how we treat our neighbors. And in fact, in the ESV translation, if you search the word neighbors, there are over 105 times in 98 separate verses that the word neighbors is used, and most of those times it's attached to a command. Here's just a few of them. Uh, Exodus 20:16 says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Exodus 20:17. many of us know this because of the Ten Commandments, it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Exodus 22, 26 says, if you ever take your neighbor's cloak in a pledge, you should return it to him before the sun goes down, which is a really fancy way of saying if you take your neighbor's cloak as sort of a promise of you give me your cloak and I'll give you this, you should return it to him before he gets cold. It also says you shall not oppress your neighbor and you shall not rob him, which feels like a duh. But then it says, and if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you should not wrong each other. You should charge each other the fair price. It says that when you make your neighbor alone in Deuteronomy of any sort, you should not go into his house to collect the pledge. You should do it on neutral ground. It says something that, that's really obvious because you would never want to do this. In Proverbs 3.29, it says, don't plan evil against your neighbor because he trusts you and he dwells alongside you. And then in Proverbs 26, 18 through 19, it says, Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor, but then says, I was only joking. I mean, you look at just those small passages and you start to realize that God, from the very beginning, he really cares about how we treat our neighbors. Perhaps one of the most significant moments in scripture about treating our neighbors well comes from what the Bible has to say in the Gospels, in the story of Jesus, and what he has to say in Mark chapter 12. So if you have your Bible with you, whether it's on your phone or, or the paperback version, if you would turn with me to Mark chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 28. And this is a passage that will be familiar to many of you. It says this, it says, And one of the scribes came up to Jesus... And heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, he asked them, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important one is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you should love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have said that he is one and that there is no other beside him and to love him with all the heart and all the understanding, with all the strength and to love one neighbors as oneself, it is more valuable than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. You see, these are the, there are these stories in the Gospels that I like to call Jesus' mic drop moments. And it's the moment when Jesus says something that's so profound that people are kind of like, 
okay. The first one happens at the very beginning of Jesus' life when he opens up the scroll and he reads what the prophets have said he is going to do. He's going to loose chains. He's going to set captives free. He's going to restore sight to the blind. And then it says this really profound thing. It says that he rolled up the scroll and he set it down and he walked away. And it just seems like this Jesus mic drop moment. And, and he says, you know, the, the scriptures have been fulfilled in your presence here today. I'm walking away. And the second moment is this one where Jesus says that the greatest commandment isn't just one commandment, it's these two. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And he says the second one, even though he didn't ask for two, he says the second one is like it. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do this, you fulfill the law. You see this lawyer, this scribe that was asking him what the greatest commandment was, he was responsible for determining which ones were the most important laws for an observant Jew to follow. Because I don't know if if you guys knew this, uh, but in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, there were 613 separate commandments that had been given by God to God's people. So there were 613 laws that were given where it was like, if you want to be an observant Jew, if you want to live your life right, if you want to someday enter into the rest of your master, you'll obey these 613 laws to the best of your ability. 365 of those laws were called negative commandments. They're the don't do this. And 248 were called positive commandments. They're the you must do this. And of course... As your anxiety probably told you in this moment, it is impossible for somebody to perfectly follow 613 separate laws, some of them being don't do this and some of them being do this. And so the scribes were responsible for determining which laws were heavy and which laws were light. And the heavy laws were the laws that you could not break. And if a light law came up against that heavy law and and it was sort of in conflict with each other, the light laws were laws that you could break for the sake of keeping the weightier law. And so when he asked Jesus what's the greatest commandment in the law or which one is more important, he's seeking to determine which laws are heavy. He's holding before Jesus these 613 uh, laws that were given, these 10 commandments that were given to God's people. And he's saying, okay, all of these laws... Which ones do we have to follow? Which ones are heavy? Which ones, if we break, will impact our ability to come into your rest? Which ones, if I want to be really observant with my life, do I have to follow? And which ones can I break for the sake of the heavier laws? So Jesus' answer is pretty interesting when you think about that, isn't it? That out of the 613 laws he could have chosen, he starts with one that I'm guessing his audience would have been like, of course, that's the most important Of course, it's the most important that that we hear that the Lord is our God, that the Lord is one, and that we love the Lord with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind and with all of our strength. You see, this came from something that was recited regularly by his audience. So they're like, of course, that's the most important. And you can almost imagine the crowd sort of nodding their head along with Jesus in that moment. Ah, yes. Of course, the most important is that if something else presses up against it, that we have to love God first. Even if that means sacrificing everything else, that that we have to make sure we're loving God, that we have to make sure that with all of our heart and all of our soul and with all of our mind and with all of our strength. And then Jesus continues, and in verse 31, he says, the second is this, you should love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment 
than these. And I'm sure in that moment, swirling through their head, they were saying, but what if loving my neighbor maybe means that that doesn't look like I'm loving you? What if loving my neighbor is really hard? What if my neighbor doesn't even know you? How do I love them well and still keep these two commandments? But the scribe repeats back to him. He says, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, that there is no other God beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself. It's much more than all burnt offerings and all sacrifices. It says that Jesus said that he answered wisely and told him, in doing this, in believing this, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So here's a question for us today. It's a question that's going to feel a little controversial as I ask it, and so I'm going to follow up, right? The question is this, what if Jesus meant what he said? And I ask that rhetorically, right? So, so before the tomatoes come out, I ask that rhetorically, what if Jesus meant what he said? You know, I think often when we think about loving our neighbors, and maybe this is just me, but I'm guessing it's not, it is so much easier to love a neighbor we've never met. It is so much easier to say, I'm loving my neighbors in Syria. I'm loving my neighbors in England. I'm loving my neighbors in Mexico. I'm loving my neighbors in another state. But it's so much harder for us to love the neighbor right in front of us sometimes. Anybody else feel that way? Am I the only one that feels like it's sometimes harder to love the neighbor who annoys you? To love the neighbor whose dog won't stop barking? To love the neighbor who microwaves their tuna casserole in the microwave at work uncovered? It's harder to love the neighbor in your office that just gets on your nerves or asks the worst questions. If you're a student, it's really hard to love your neighbor who at the end of class is like, didn't we have homework we were supposed to turn in? Because I have it, right? It is hard to love our actual neighbors. I think it's much harder to love the neighbors in front of us than it is to love some nebulous neighbor that we've never actually had to meet or sit down with. See, often when we look at this passage, it's way easier for us to apply it to a neighbor we've never met. And so we tithe or, or we volunteer our time and we're like, I'm loving my neighbor as myself in doing this. But what if Jesus wants us to love our actual neighbors? What if Jesus wants you to love the person who never wipes down the equipment at the gym after they use it? And you're like, we're in the middle of a pandemic <laughs> and you just left your sweat stains there, right? What if Jesus wants you to love your neighbor who on Facebook posts the worst political rants? And you're just like, buddy, I want to unfriend you. I don't even know if I want to love you right now, right? What if Jesus wants you to love the neighbor who just is always needing things from you? I mean, you're like, do you even buy groceries because you keep coming over for eggs and sugar and flour? Like, can I just buy, can I just give you some, right? What if Jesus wants you to love that neighbor? You see, I think a problem happens when we look at this passage and we remove the proximity from it. And we say, I'm, I'm loving my neighbors in, in all these ways that don't involve my neighbor right in front of me. I think we start making excuses. Well, I'm loving my neighbors over there, so I don't actually have to love this neighbor here. Well, this neighbor, even if I loved them, I don't think they would really receive it, and so it's much easier for me to love my neighbor by donating to a food shelf. I think it's way easier for me to love my neighbor by giving them my time, because this neighbor right next to me, I don't even know if they're even going to come and hear the gospel ever. This neighbor in front of me, it's hard, and so it's easier for me to love my neighbor over here. So throughout the, the next few weeks, how much time I have with you, I want to talk about what it means for us to actually love our neighbors in ways that transform our entire community. Because Jesus saw loving the neighbor in front of us as absolutely critical 
do his mission. I mean, there are so many moments in Jesus' life when he could have kept walking, but he stopped because there was somebody in front of him who needed him. And so often this person that was in front of him, they didn't come from Jesus' background. There were laws that, that were impacting Jesus' ability to actually love this person, and he chose to break down all of that to care for the person in front of him and to love his direct neighbor just as well as he loved the rest of the world. When the scribe says it's much more important to love God and love your neighbor than it is to sacrifice, you have to understand that sacrificing was an important part of first century faith. And Jesus doesn't correct him. Jesus doesn't say, well, yeah, I get, I get that, but you should also still be completing this. He says, you're right. It is so much more important to love God and love your neighbor. And everything in the law is wrapped up in these two commandments I've given you. And he says, in, in doing this, you are not far from the kingdom. In fact, it's right in front of you. Here's a core truth. In order to love God, you have to love your neighbor and vice versa. You can't love your neighbor without loving God. And you can't love God without loving your neighbor. We can't both love and praise God and despise people who have been made in God's image. We can't love God and say that God is holy and worthy of honor and at the same time disparage people who are made in God's image. And I think that's often why, why all the ideas of neighboring involve this sacrificial kind of love. I don't think that God is unaware that loving one another is hard. I mean, he made us with all of our quirks and with all of the ways that we get on each other's nerves and all the ways that we just grind up against each other personality-wise and all the differing opinions and everything like that. God is not unaware that loving our neighbors is hard. And I think that's why from the beginning, loving your neighbor is wrapped up in this sacrificial type of love. That's why from the very beginning, the commandments are, hey, if you have your neighbor's cloak and he's about to get cold because the sun is going down, just return his cloak. Hey, if your neighbor owns you, owes you money, don't go into his house to collect it. Bring him out on neutral ground so that you can honor him. From the very beginning, loving your neighbor is all about sacrificially serving our God through our neighbor. You see, increasingly loving and serving our neighbor, it should cause us to increasingly love and serve God. And loving and serving God, it should overflow onto our neighbors. I often hear um, from people that work in the service industry, and you probably heard this too, their most feared crowd is not Friday night bar crowd, it's Sunday after church. Because they know that they're going to be treated the worst and tipped the least. I mean, you look at that and you think, that shouldn't be. That should be, they should be like, I'm so glad I have a Sunday shift because I know I'm going to be treated well today. And I know I'm going to get good tips. Loving our neighbors who are hard to love. Even the ones who, who borrowed your snowblower and they still haven't returned it. <laughs> even though they've seen you shoveling, right, the past few days. Or, or the neighbor on next door that always is posting about how people are speeding through the neighborhood and you're like, it's fine, everything's okay, we're okay, right? Or, or the neighbor in your office, your office mate, who just kind of like incessantly talks all throughout the day or who brings just like the smelliest salmon every day to microwave because they're currently on a cleanse and so they're microwaving it in the middle of the empty office and you're just like, come on. The neighbors who are hard to love, those are the moments when we see most clearly the fruits of our loving and serving God. 
And those are the moments that the, they see most clearly through us what it looks like to love God as well. Now, I know this is hard. It is really challenging. And, and one of my pastoral commitments is I never ask people to go to a place I haven't already gone. I know it's hard. Kids, I know this is really hard because it is really hard to love people who are mean to you. It's super hard to, to love people who, who in the hallways, you're just like, oh, come on, this, this kid is just so annoying. This person just gets on my nerves. This, this one's kind of the, the class clown and I just want to focus or, or this one's always so focused on school and I just want to have fun every once in a while. I know it's hard. But if you start loving your neighbors well now, it gets easier. And adults, this is sometimes, I think, even harder for us than it is for kids. I mean, like, I remember when I was a kid, I could get in a fight with someone and, like, the next day still be best friends, right? I very clearly remember in sixth grade, I got in uh, my first and last ever fist fight with another girl in class. And we sat down with our teacher, and our first question was, can we just go to gym? Like, can we? We're good now. We actually just want to go play basketball. <laughs> like, it was just a moment, right? It is harder for us sometimes as adults because people get on our nerves because we have different values than them and we think different things. And, and sometimes the values that we have, we're holding really, really firmly because we need to and somebody else is pressing up against them and you're just like, how do I even begin to love you? And, and I think sometimes it's hard for us as adults because it looks like more sacrifice and more risk. I mean, I think about all the times that it feels like risk to love someone really well and have people be like, what the heck? Why are you spending more time with them? Or, or why are you giving so sacrificially knowing they're never going to give it back? And, and it feels like a bigger risk to say, okay, I'm putting myself out here. And, and it's easier for us, I think, sometimes as adults to have our bubbles and to not be able to really break free of them. We have the friends that we're comfortable with and the ideas we're comfortable with and the places we're comfortable with. And what would it look like for us to actually break all of that down and start being Minnesota nice in the way the gospel calls us to instead of Minnesota ice. There's a really great book if you're looking for something to read as we go through this. It's called The Art of Neighboring. And if you've never read it, it's by a guy named Jay Pathak and Dave Runyon. And it's all about how important it is for us to be God-honoring neighbors. And the premise that they come from is exactly the scriptural idea that the most important commandments is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And they do this thing, you can find it and download it online if you're a visual person, where they actually have a bingo card. And they encourage people as you read the book, they say, put this bingo card on your fridge and write down the names of your actual neighbors. I mean, it's hard to get to know our neighbors. I'm super blessed. I live in a six-unit apartment building, so I know all of my neighbors. But one, I've lived there for a year, I think we've maybe said three words, right? But write down the names of your actual neighbors in your workplace. Get to know the names of the people who work around you. That's our first step for being really good neighbors, is to actually know our neighbors. And once you know the name, you can start asking things like, hey, so what do you do? Or I, I notice you leave really early in the morning. What do you do for work? Hey, and I noticed that, that there's someone that lives at your home that's in a wheelchair. Do you, do you take care of them? What's, what's the story, right? Loving our neighbors starts with getting to know our neighbors. And once we know their names and we know a little bit about them, we can start having deeper conversations. And we start to become people who can actually rely on our neighbors for things and can give and offer things sacrificially because we know who the person is that we're giving and sacrificing to. You see, when the Art of Neighboring folks came up with this bingo card and they started to do it with congregations and groups all over the United States, they found this. About 10% of people could fill out the name of eight of their neighbors. So if you're in the same boat, 
don't feel stressed. About 10% of people can fill out the name of eight of their neighbors. About 3% of people could say a fact about their neighbor, about just one of them. And less than 1% of people could write down in-depth information about one neighbor. You see, it's the way we live often that we live sort of separated lives. We live in neighborhoods, but we're not necessarily in neighborhoods the way that we used to be. And it's easier for us to have our circles and our people and, and our community groups and, and our Facebook groups and, and the people that, that are like us. And it makes it easier for us to isolate and insulate ourselves against the people that we don't know yet. Because that's way more risky to get to know them than it is to continue to get to know the people that are already in your life. Here's the good news, though. We know this can be really scary. I'm 100% extroverted. So, so neighboring sometimes is like a little easier for me because I'm really annoying. Um, and I'm like, hey, what's up? I'm Caitlin. It's so nice to meet you. I see you have a dog. I also have a dog. I, I straight up, I'm about to text one of my neighbors tonight and be like, hey, if you need a break, your dog can just come over and play with my dog. Like, that's totally fine, right? I mean, I literally score 100% every time I take the Myers-Briggs as an extrovert. Now, not all of you are extroverts, and I know that. And it is terrifying <laughs> to ask you to get to know at least A to your neighbors or whatever number you decide on, it is terrifying to say that. And some of you are like, I'm new to my neighborhood. I don't even know. I'm still trying to figure out where my local Walgreens is. I don't even know who my neighbors are. But the good news is that we're invited to go to a place where Jesus has already gone before us. You see, Jesus has showed us the ultimate example of what it looks like to neighbor well. And neighboring well, a lot of it is just wrapped up in being aware of what's happening around us and who's around us and what the needs are. You see, we know this can be really hard because our lives often don't have a lot of margin to make the greatest commandment our greatest priority. I mean, how many of you guys are like, sometimes I feel like I don't even have enough time to eat dinner. Sometimes it's like, it's like I, I feel like I haven't even gotten a moment to myself all day, and now you're asking me to give that up to a neighbor. We know this is hard. And the, the writers of the book, they know it's hard. And anybody who talks about neighboring, they know it's hard. You see, if we don't even have the margin in our schedule to even breathe for ourselves, we often can't even start to think about loving or serving our neighbors. If our days are so tightly packed that anything else sounds like a chore, we often can't even take the first step of neighboring. And so I want to invite you over the next few weeks to make some simple, small changes to just be more aware of the neighborhoods or the places or the workplaces that you're within. A lot of the changes can be really simple. It can be like going to the mailbox when you see your other neighbors going to the mailbox instead of like seeing them coming and you're like right at the door and you're like, and we're sitting until you go to your mailbox and get back to your house and then I'll come out and I'll get my mail. Some of it can be like going for a walk once it's a little bit nicer out and actually saying hi to your neighbors as you pass by them. Another one can be spending more time in common areas. I'm the type of person where even at Bethel, I just found out, I've been there, uh, let's see, since September, I just found out that there's a staff lounge. And I went there for the first time this past week, but I went there to get a microwavable bowl so I could microwave my soup in my office and eat it in my office with the door shut and locked, right? I mean, it is a small change to actually start spending time in common areas at work like a break room. Or, or as it warms up, to spend time on your front porch instead of your back porch. Or to go more often to places that are maybe a little bit busier. It's all about creating margin so we can start to notice our neighbors. And our neighbors can start to notice our presence too. 
And could you imagine if over these next few weeks, we all committed to creating a little bit more margin to notice and love and serve our neighbors? Can you imagine if if at the end of the, the winter, if instead of feeling more isolated, you actually started to get to know people who maybe all winter have felt even more isolated, and you actually got to know people's stories, and you had the opportunity to speak into their lives and to invite them even into this community, if you had an opportunity to actually get to know who they are and their hopes and their dreams, and you could actually, at the end of this, say things about your neighbors that are, that are just deep feelings and concerns and things they're going through, and you knew them so well that you got to walk alongside them in those journeys. Could you imagine if in all of Brooklyn Park in this area, if Clarity Church had this reputation as being the absolute friendliest church on the block? And when people were like, hey, you know what? You know it's a great community. You know it's a really open space to thrive in is this church. There's a story I love, and, and it's in a short documentary if you're looking for something to watch this week. It's a 20-minute documentary. It's called Godspeed, The Pace of Being Known. And the whole premise of this is that there's this guy who comes from America out, of, out to St. Andrews University in Scotland, uh, and he is, is responsible for, his wife is doing his P, her PhD, and he's responsible for pastoring this church in Scotland. And he shows up the first day, and he says, where's my office? And the priest who's running the church says, what do you mean your office? And he's like, yeah, where am I going to set up? Where's my study? And the priest takes him outside the doors and starts to walk with him into the neighborhood. And he says, this is your study. This is where you work. And the, the guy that, that does this documentary, this priest, he, he starts to develop this idea. And he talks about God's speed. He says, you know, if God's speed is, is reflected in how we move and work, and if we think about the fact that we can maybe walk four miles an hour, what if God's speed is a lot slower than most of us move? What if God's speed is about four miles an hour? What if it's a walk down the road? What if it's a conversation on the porch? What if it's not so rushed and hurried, but what if it's all about being known? What if the speed of God is the same pace that we can get to know another person? He says this at the end of all this. He reflects on these moments. And if you watch the documentary, yeah, there's a specific story that's told all throughout of his relationship with one of the guys in the parish. And he says, it turns out I wasn't there to give people the good news. I was there to be a part of their life. Jesus earned people's trust by risking being known. It's a rich world, he says, but you don't get the richness without vulnerability. And so that's the invitation over the next few weeks to start to walk at God's pace and to start to risk being known so that we can know other people well.